planet Cause I don't know if we have the time to Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Human Odyssey podcast. I'm Skander, joined always by the human incarnation of a lactose intolerant goblin, my co-host Jamie. Today's song is Decade of Doubt by the eternal emo sad boy artist R.I.P. Fun. You can go and check out his music on SoundCloud or Instagram at rip.fun. Today we're heading back to the familiar shores of England to meet Sir Brian Hoskins. He's currently a visiting professor at the University of Reading and chair of the Grantham Institute and Imperial College London. However, Brian has a long list of achievements to his name, including being the founding director of the Grantham Institute for a decade, the head of Department of Meteorology, president of the British Royal Meteorological Society, council member of the Royal Society, and a contributor to the Stern Review as well as the IPCC fourth assessment. We're so grateful to have him on the show. Sir Brian Hoskins, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. And you? Good, good. Yeah, not bad. I'm a little bit tired because I, I spent uh, up to the very late hours following the US election. Uh, maybe you shouldn't have done that because it gave me some nightmares. Let's just say that. You no, know, elections have, have not been good to listen to in the recent period. And uh, I didn't stay up all night, but I turned the radio on at seven this morning. And oh my God, no. <laughs> Yeah. So just for our listeners, we're probably a few hours or at most a day away from hearing the election results mm -hmm. in the US. If you're hearing this, you definitely know the results already, yeah. because this will be posted in at least a week. But we're uh, still innocent. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, at this point, uh, Trump is looking to win Pennsylvania, which is quite scary, um, has probably won Florida, which is also quite scary, um, and Ohio, the all swing states that um, no one really thought he would stand a chance because Joe Biden seemed so poised to take down Trump um, on a national scale. But, but it's still not over, and there's still the postal votes to be counted within the next week or so. So, you know, fingers crossed. Um, I don't know, Brian, if you've been following U.S. politics a little bit, apart from just election night. Well, I lived in the States for three years, so uh, I have some very good friends there, and we have very strong links there still. Mm -hmm. But um, whatever the result, I'm, I remain amazed and disappointed that almost half the electorate would have actually supported Trump, whatever happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I still remember, I think, um, you know, one of the quotes that kind of stayed with me was uh, Noam Chomsky saying that the Republican Party is uh, the most dangerous terrorist group on earth for for the first reason of, of uh, first of his reasons at least to um their denial of of climate change and, and complete mm. utter inaction towards it um, i think that that rang quite true with me and it, it rings true with trump as well even though he's not really a republican establishment uh, per se no, the, the climate change issue is a huge one for me, obviously, but it's a sort of touchstone for many other things as well, the, the, the reaction to many issues. Mm -hmm. So, Brian Hoskins, um, let's get into why you're here, why you're on this podcast, because a lot of our listeners usually don't really follow um, climate institutes, things like that. A lot of them are just, just interested, so they might not know who you are. You were born in Bristol. Uh, had both of your degrees from Cambridge, got a PhD in mathematics, and then joined the Department of Meteorology at the University of Reading in 1971, became a professor in 81, became head of department in the 90s, 
quite a, a big a big rise um and even became president of the British Royal Meteorological Society in 1998, as well as a Royal Society, Royal Society Council member. Sorry. Um, and then it seems that you kind of, just to top it off, because it wasn't enough, uh, you kind of became founding director of the, uh, of the Grantham Institute, which we've had Joanna Haig and Martin Siegert um, for on, and they were great. We, we had such a blast um, recording those episodes with them. We learned so much. Um, for everyone listening, I, I really recommend you go and watch those as well. Um, and you're now a visiting professor at Reading and a tra- uh, chair of the Grantham Institute at Imperial. That's right. I've sort of retired, but um, I don't think anyone in this game really retires. So I, yeah. I sort of retired in 2014. But uh, That's I, what I, we'd heard from Keith Bevan, our uh, hydrologist uh, at Lancaster, told us you never really retire. No, that's right. I'm still trying to write papers as well. So uh, um, I remember being asked in China, actually, which do you think is your best paper? And I said, my next one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do you you find this kind of semi-retirement enjoyable? You know, it's kind of like you're more free, but you can... Yeah, this is is, uh, real fun because you can combine some of the freedom of, of being retired with also some of the things that you can enjoy, uh, well, in terms of the climate issue, there's important things you think you can still contribute. And then in research, you you have the um, great freedom to think a bit longer and deeper about things and try and upturn the apple cart, you know, and to say, hey, you all believe this, but I, I think that this is actually maybe the way we should be looking at this. And uh, whereas people who are desperate for the next research assessment exercise and whatever and they're on the sort of mills the 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 conveyor belt and, and having to drive along and i can sort of yeah. take time and uh, think about it so it, it's fun i can go for a health walk and then i can try and write a paper in the afternoon so that's good <laughs> yeah you're still publishing ideal. <laughs> yeah oh, yes absolutely so i think about five a year at the moment yeah so yes i still publish i mean i I've actually had one accepted recently, which I'm quite excited about, which um, is to do with the the Hadley cell, which is the overturning motion of the atmosphere where the air rises somewhere near the equator and mm-hmm. descends in the desert region of the winter hemisphere and that big overturning circulation. So I've sort of written a paper saying, I think we need to look at this in a different way. So that, that's, that's exciting for me. Uh, the climate change issue is important but actually understanding how the atmosphere works is what is my great sort of theoretical academic thrill is if you really understand something new there, understanding how quite how that weather system works or that how that bit of the climate system works. So that's what my PhD was really. And that started me on the line back in uh, whenever that was the late sixties. And so the question was, why do we have those things on weather maps called fronts? Now, what are they? Why are they there? Because if you think about it, then the, the sun's input is really over a long length scale. And yet what we see on weather maps is the temperature contrast tightened into these frontal regions and you have all the rain and weather associated with that. And um, fronts occur on Mars, they occur in the ocean. So there's part of a thing of a rotating, a fluid on a rotating uh, sphere. 
And that's what I was able to do, produce the theory of why fronts are there as a mathematical thing from the basic equations. So that, that's, you know, that's the sort of thing that I really enjoy. Mm. Yeah. Could you potentially, for our readers, uh, sorry, for, for our listeners, I'm in the wrong, in the wrong media now, um, for our listeners that have maybe, you know, blitzed through education or, or not really uh, taken too much time to, to properly listen in, the, in their science classes, could you maybe give us a sort of simplified explanation of, of what, the, what you understand the atmosphere to be and what fronts uh, yeah. are as well. well so first what is the atmosphere and the atmosphere is a gas and the gas and the water in the ocean both behave like fluids so the atmosphere is a fluid it's comp- got various constituents but most of those stay in about the same proportion um, except water water is the one that changes but then we've got this gas it's got gravity holding it down on this planet so gravity is a huge force. But then we look at this on a, a planet that's rotating and it's rotating quite rapidly. So if you're sitting on the equator, you're moving around at 465 meters per second. That's huge. I mean, if you want miles an hour, that's more than a thousand miles an hour. So you're rotating around at this huge race and the atmosphere is almost rotating around with with that planet because of the friction of the planet. So what we're dealing with is the small deviations from that atmosphere rotating with the planet. And it behaves like a lot of things. It obeys, it, uh, Newton's laws of motion describe it pretty well, and the equations of thermodynamics. So we have various equations that we think apply, but they're horribly uh, difficult to deal with. And the question is, can you see through all that difficulty and understand why things occur? So that's what sort of thing I've done. I did with fronts and and mid-latitude, the the weather system. We have the low pressures that come through. Why are they there? Why do they have the sort of structures they have? And how can we best put them, um, design our numerical models, our computer models, which may be in order to give a weather forecast or a climate projection. Um, There's roughly the same models, but they have more in them if they're climate. So the question is not just understanding those systems better, but in the end, enabling better weather forecasts or better climate projections and more confidence in those climate projections. Mm -hmm. So a crucial thing when you're looking forward in climate is not just what do the models say, but how much confidence do we have in the various aspects of those? Mm-hmm. So we're incredibly confident based on 19th century uh, physics that the given extra carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the climate system will warm. Okay, it was going to warm, but then we get to how much and how confident are we of that? And then how, how much of other things will go that? How much will the sea level rise? How will the monsoons change in somewhere like India? How will the weather systems change near us in the UK? So you then have these things that are in models and you have to make sure they're well simulated by those models and then gauge just how confident can we be in the projections of those for the future. So that's the sort of area I'm in. I've only written a couple of 
I've written two, more than 200 papers, but only a couple of those are really basically directed straight towards climate change. Most of it is actually un the understanding behind weather forecasting or climate projection. But despite that, um, I haven't written the papers. I've been um, on the World Climate Research Program. I was vice chair of that and, and various things. To, and the Met Office scientific advisory committees and the, um, the climate change things in the UK. So I'm sort of tend to chair things there or be on committees because this understanding is absolutely crucial to knowing how to take those forecasts or those projections and how to improve them. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, because um, we had, as I mentioned before, we had um, Keith Bevan, who's the first hydrologist in, in decades to be named to the Royal Society in England, um, a great professor, come on the podcast. And, and he explained to us, um, as a hydrologist, how hydrology is done for climate modeling. And in his view, it seemed like he had a little bit of um, a little bit of beef, let's say a little bit of problems with the with climate modeling, because he said hydrology had so many uncertainties that it was really difficult to plug into climate modeling with certainty. And that really, for him, a lot of climate models were based on on these uncertainties of, of uh, sometimes ranging in, you know, 20, 30% of, of uncertainties. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I'm not sure as a mathematician, how do you feel about these sort of accusations, I guess, sometimes that climate models are a little bit too, too vague sometimes because so many parts, it, it comprises of so many parts, a lot of them, which aren't that precise sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a huge problem. You've got this climate system. Now, we know the, um, the basic laws that seem to dis should describe the, the flow of the atmosphere. You have the ocean to put in, similarly. You have the biosphere, all the plants, etc., the land surface, and the hydrology on that land surface. Uh, in the atmosphere, you have... Um, the carbon which is moving from this biosphere into the atmosphere. You have reactions going on, chemical reactions going on in the atmosphere. So it's an incredibly complex system. And certainly it is impossible to give a deterministic projection that says this will be exactly this at this time. Uncertainty is inherent in the, in the whole climate system and in in terms of projections for the future. Um, and an crucial issue is how we handle that uncertainty. And this is often done by varying um, parameters. So you don't just run the model once, you run it with um, maybe different parameters. You maybe run it with um, uncertainty built in, the sort of stochastic, as it's often called, where you build in this uncertainty so there's a, a random behavior to it. Um, so the, those who get near models like me, I mean, I've been very involved in modeling over the years. We do not take this results from the model and say, and present it to someone and say, that's it. Mm -hmm. That is certainly not it. That is the result from one model run in a certain way. And then you must view this in the context of running that model in different ways and of models from different places and try and 
And this is where the understanding comes in, is try and build, draw from that the essence of what we really know for the future. And so we don't say that it will be this, but we can say, well, we are confident of this, we are less confident of this, but we think the range is this to this. And for some aspects, you might say, well, at this moment, we really don't know. And that's, so I always feel uneasy when someone says, the Arctic ice is going to disappear in five years' time. Mm-hmm. No, you can't say that. There is uncertainty built into all these things. And anyone who's giving you a certain thing like that, you can say, no, you're not handling the system properly. So um, I keep better anyone who knows about one part of the climate system, well, will think it's not handled properly in climate models because the climate model has to handle all the other parts as well. But the crucial thing is to build, to actually draw the uncertainty from these various aspects and put those uncertainties together and get a feel for the uncertainty for the future. What can we be sure of and what can we be less sure of? And what's the range that we expect? Given those uncertainties, do you think it's useful to be on the side of caution, I suppose, to, to assume the worst case within the, the possible range, the ranges for a model? Yeah, I mean, I think it is very important to look at the um, the top end of the range and say, um, could we cope with this if it happened? Um, you know, let me take the example of the next um, tidal barrier in London for the Thames. That we've got to, there's got to be another one built, and at the time, the the best estimate. Um, of climate change at the end of the century, sorry, the sea level rise at the end of the century was probably about half a metre or so, maybe slightly over half a metre, but there was a range. And there was a range from maybe a quarter of a metre up to one metre. And what's been decided, what was decided a few years ago to do was to say, well, let's see what we would do if we actually had to cope with two meters, but not to decide now to to build something that will deal with two meters, but to make sure any decisions we make now would not close off the possibility of handling two meters later. So you don't say, right, it could be 10 meters, therefore we'll build something 10 meters high now. You say, let's not close off that possibility. And if you're building, in the floodplain, you know, now you might say, well, if you take the middle of the road or the lower end, this river's not going to flood. Our house, that house is going to be all right. But then, I mean, I think given you're think, looking at a house that you hope will last 50 years or more, you'd say, well, perhaps we should look at the higher end of the range to see just how confident are we that we should really put a house there. So, I mean, if you're looking at something like sea level rise, you can be guided by what the models say. But then you think about, well, where's that huge sea level rise going to come from? Probably Antarctica or Greenland. And you look back at the last time the temperatures were as warm as they're going to be in this second half of the century, and the sea level was six metres higher. You know, so, well, the best forecasts at the moment, actually, are they're more of the upper range, the one meter might be more central now than it was in the past a few years ago 
and there's more concern over the Antarctica, just the, the actual possibility of Antarctic ice sheet melting. So when you're making decisions, you've got to look at all these things. What are the models telling you now? What's the upper end? How physically possible is that upper end? So if the upper end of the range doesn't seem physically possible, then you should say, okay, that doesn't seem, you know, we don't see how that could happen. But with um, many things, you can say, well, if there is a physically possible way this could happen, then we should recognize this as a possibility. And we should say, well, what we're doing, should we, could we cope with that? So I don't say take the top end of the range, but I do say think about the top end of the range. Is it physically plausible? Are we, what we're going to do now, would that be possible if we were going towards the top end of the range? Do you find that a lot of the worst case scenarios do come true in climate science? Or I wonder what you think uh, kind of tends to, to come true, well, at least in, in what you've well, seen. Um, over the years, I think in general, the climate system has really behaved roughly as we might have expected. Um, but I, I am concerned when some people go out on a limb and say, give a dis doom and disaster thing by taking the top end of the range and saying it will. And then to me, that's very dangerous because people might say, oh God, we, we've had it then, you know, let's go out and have a party or let's go mm -hmm. because it's, it's nothing we can do. And when the, when the top end of the range, people take them and say it will, I think that is counterproductive because then when a few years time, people see it hasn't, as mm -hmm. they'll just say, oh, the whole thing's, uh, yeah. Yeah, the whole, whole thing can't be trusted. So I said there was an example um, a few years ago where people were saying the Arctic ice is going to be disappeared in five years. Well, I, and there, there was no way that I could see that that was a physically plausible thing that was being said. And, and the Arctic ice is, the trend is such that it's going to disappear in September 2050 or somewhere around there. It will grow again in the winter, but it will, uh, you know, so it do doesn't matter to me whether it's 2040 or 2060. That's the direction we're headed. And the mm -hmm. direction we're headed is pretty nasty. So we should mm -hmm. do something about it. And by over-egging it, I don't know, the, uh, the middle of the road projections are so nasty. I don't think anyone's got to over-egg it. Yeah. You know, it's this disaster thing that people feel, oh, we're not getting the headlines anymore. Mm -hmm. Let's yeah. make it a bit more such that we can get the headlines and the um the thing if we're not getting the headlines there's something wrong with the newspapers you know it's because it, this is a frightening stuff that we're dealing with yeah i think you're absolutely right i mean the middle of the road productions for what i see in terms of let's say um coral reefs which we've mentioned a little bit on the podcast before uh, are are really really scary i mean um two degrees and, and the acidification of the ocean uh, causing the loss of 99.9% of coral reefs by, you know, by uh, potentially the end of the century is, is I think, scary enough. We, there's not really a need to lie about. about yeah, I, my wife and I were in Australia four or five years ago. And we One of the things we really want to do is go to the Great Barrier Reef. And we were so disappointed. Mm. And they tried to say, oh, well, it's just this year or the tides were a bit strong or something and 
No, there, there were, you could see for yourself that they were, they were trying not to see what was happening. And mm -hmm. there's coral reefs disappearing. And I, there are so many, so many aspects of the natural system that are in trouble. And, and we've only reached just over a degree or so with the global yeah. warming. And the sea level rise, again, you can, you can ignore that, but then it's already had its impact on Hurricane Sandy that hit New York. Um, the impact was so much greater because sea level is 20 centimetres higher than it used to be. So if you add 20 centimetres onto the sea level, already that surge, which caused great trouble in New York, is that much bigger than it would be. Um, so if you think about Bangladesh, as the sea level rises and you, you head up towards a metre, we're almost inevitably going to reach a metre sea level rise. And they're already having tremendous problems with inundation, with the, the, sail, the salinity of the water supply and the flooding. Um, so it, it's, not just, it, it's not just something for the future, it's already happening. I think this was a great difference from when I first started talking about climate change. Well, there's two great differences. And my first public talk on climate change was in the mid 80s. And at that point, as I say, some were set talk. There'd been a panorama program on the BBC with icebergs coming up the Thames because they're talking about an ice age, ice age coming. Well, I came out with it's the greenhouse gas emissions that we've got to worry about. But there was, at that time, people couldn't see anything themselves. It was all, this is the direction we're going in. I can't see any problem. And the other aspect is, we didn't have any of the technologies to deal with it either. So the two things that have really changed is one, people can see that the climate is changing and that this is pretty damaging. And secondly, the explosion of the technologies to actually deal with the problem. So two big changes which make it much easier to give a public talk these days. But I'm, I'm, I'm very sad that we're in this situation we are where we have to say yeah. this is an urgent problem. Yeah. And speaking of you've of this being an urgent problem, you have contributed to a lot of the knowledge to fight against that, but especially in the form of the Stern Review and the IPCC fourth assessment report. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Could you tell us maybe what the Stern Review is and how you contributed to it? Yeah, let me say first, my contribution to that was really very small. But, mm -hmm. um, Nick Stern, who I know very well now, I didn't at that point was actually asked, he'd come through the financial world and he was then asked by the Chancellor of the Exchequer um, to write something about climate change and the implications, really with an economic angle, but a UK angle. And I was present at the launch, I mean, I contributed some of my understanding of the climate system and what was likely to happen. But um, it was very much written from the economist's angle and they were the ones who really said, we have a big problem here and it's a, a, a big failure of the capitalist system or of the market system that uh, we've got used to not paying anything for the rubbish we produce, basically. So it's the story of America. You, you, you ruin the place you are and then you move further west and then ruin that bit. And so you never take account of all the rubbish you've produced. And we've always looked on the atmosphere as somewhere you can throw your rubbish 
um, and the ocean is somewhere you can throw your rubbish. Now it came back to bite us with um, air quality and the, the smogs of the 50s, which, and then we realized we needed, a, um, we needed to stop putting quite as much filth into the atmosphere in terms of pollution. But then Nick Stern said, really, we've got to do the same with um, emissions of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, that those who produce carbon dioxide gases have somehow got to pay, pay the cost that, the, that inevitably will be felt by the world if we go on emitting greenhouse gases. The climate will change. So they're getting away free with this and they should be paying for it. Mm. So this was the idea that we really should be owning the gases we emit to the atmosphere. And that was a, a big thing that, and as an economist saying, we've got to take this on board in terms of our sort of um, whole view of the cost loss of doing something else. Um, is something financially viable? How does an economy work? You've got to take this on board. So I think that was incredibly important. I was there at the Royal Society when it was launched. Tony Blair and, and uh, Gordon Brown, although they weren't really talking to one another, had Nick Stern in between them, and they were both lauding this report and taking it very seriously. It, it sounds quite... Um kind of ahead of its time for for 2006 i mean oh it, it really was absolutely yeah um the um this was a trailblazing thing and i think we can be very very proud in the uk yeah. that we have been trailblazing on much of this um margaret thatcher in the 90s was the first well in the late 80s um up to 1990 was really the first international leader to uh, really push this if you read as I did the other day, go back to, uh, you can find it on YouTube, her speech to the UN. It is an amazing speech. Um, anyone who gave it now, you'd think that was amazing, but to do it back 30 years ago was absolutely incredible. Now, she's not my favorite politician, but this was amazing. And so she took this on board. And I think the, the fact the Conservative Party have been supportive of Climate Change Act, etc. following that, very much follows her lead back from them. And so it isn't a political issue in this country, or it hasn't been. Um, then, so the, the Stern report was a new one, and then maybe we'll come to the Climate Change Act later on, because that was hugely important. But let me yeah. talk about the IPCC, because you mm -hmm. mentioned that as well. So this was, again, back in this period around... 1990, where people were saying we need to get the world together on this, and the scientists need to actually produce a, a consolidated report to put in front of politicians. And so this first effort of an IPCC was started, and John Horton from the UK played a big role in that. Um, and that was then led to the, the, there was the Rio Earth Summit and the IPCC had their report for that, the first report. And the Rio Earth Summit essentially was the first place where the countries of the world politically said, we should be doing something about what we're doing to our environment. And the IPCC then, 
So the, U, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is quite a mouthful, UNFCCC it's usually called, but that's the countries of the world getting together to do something about climate. And they meet every year, and it's called the um, COP, uh, it's to the, the parties, but there's nothing to do with going out and have a party. That's the, <laughs> the governments of the world coming mm -hmm. together. And the IPCC and has continued to write reports every six years or so um, to feed into this uh, framework convention on climate change meetings, the politicians. And over the years, what are we on this sort of sixth report? Um, there's been these reports. I took, I played a role in the fourth, IPCC fourth assessment. But it's not the same scientist all the time. Different scientists come in and go out um, so I took a role in the fourth one uh, in one of the in writing um, both in reviewing one chapter and in writing the overall report um, assessment report and that was the one actually where we received a Nobel Prize along with Al Gore so I have about a thousandth of a Nobel Prize um, which was, you know, it's, it's nice, but, the, but the, um, the recognition of the whole process was what was being done there. But it's hugely important that the scientists keep presenting to the politicians, this is our best understanding of the science at present, the dangers and the uncertainties. And um, this is eventually, well, Copenhagen, there was the meeting of the, the COP in Copenhagen, what was that? That was 2009, wasn't it? And we were all so hopeful that this was going to be where the countries of the world would, would really do something about climate change. And we were all decimated at what happened. So, um, but however, from the ashes of that arose the Paris Agreement of doing things in a different way. And again, the contributions of the IPCC are crucial in that because they'd written reports about 1.5 and 2 degrees, etc. And the politicians took that, and the countries of the world took that in 2000, uh, 2015, and said we, we should try keep the rise in temperature to less than 2 degrees, preferably closer to 1.5 degrees. And the idea of net zero came in, that the emissions have got to go to zero. And that came very much through from the science, from the IPCC, the only way of stopping climate, keeping on warming and changing, is to make the net emissions of greenhouse gases zero. As long as we go on emitting CO2, every bit of CO2 we emit will change the climate for the next thousand years. I mean, it's a sobering thought, isn't it? Mm. And so the countries of the world sort of took that on board, right, we've got to go to zero. And the, the, the way there was agreement in Paris was actually the countries not being told what they had to do, but actually say, please volunteer what you will do. So they volunteered what they would do. It's not enough. But then the whole process is such that those voluntary contributions will, should have been revised in the UK COP that was going to be in Glasgow this, uh, this November, December, but has now been put off for a year because of the COVID. And it was hoped, very much depending on the US election, I think, uh, which is where we came in, um, that the, those revisions, those uh, 
freely given contributions might add up to much closer to two degrees than before. So the IPCC played a crucial role in that. It's been a huge effort for scientists. I mean, I was involved in one. I didn't want to be involved in too many because the commitment of time was huge. You don't get paid mm. for it. It yeah. doesn't, you know, yeah. you're not writing papers, you're contributing to this thing. And it takes a huge amount of time. Um, so um, I think the scientists have done a great job there. They did, there was an element in the IPCC of always having to prove that climate change was there rather than the switch to climate change is there, just how bad is it and how bad is it going to be? Not, is it climate change? We had to, you know, we gradually changed our language. And I remember in the report I was involved with um, that the, the fact that the climate had changed, had warmed, and that the human contribution was, um, was an important part of that. Oh, I've lost the word for this, incontrovertible, yes, that's right, <laughs> which works in many languages because it comes from Latin. So essentially, you, you know, the, the language became ever stronger. You can't get away from this, politicians. Climate is changing and it's dangerous. So the language became ever stronger in telling them that and in what they must do. Yeah, so on, on that topic, I'd like to learn more about your role as an advisor. I mean, you, you said Margaret Thatcher's response was sort of in, in favour of uh, adopting these regulations. But in general, do you, how was your experience in um, politicians responding to your advice? Yeah, um, <clears throat> Margaret Thatcher said it's important. I'm not sure she'd, she'd agreed with the word regulations. I don't know how she expected us to deal with it, but one thing she didn't like was regulation. Mm. So, um, and this is often the dilemma for, for politicians to the right of the centre, where they say this is an important issue, but somehow we want this to happen without us producing the regulations to make it happen. Yeah. Whereas my view is always, there's government sets the playing field on which things happen. So they set the tilt of the playing field. And if you want the goals at that end, you tilt the playing field to make sure it's easier to go that way. Um, and so we've got to try and get a balance between regulation, uh, encouragement, carrots and stick is always how much there is. Now, um, the first politician I advised was the Secretary of State for Transport in 1990. For one year, I was his special advisor on the global environment. And he was um, supportive because, basically, because Margaret Thatcher said he should be. Um, so he, he was sort of supportive. Um, the next big report I was involved in was the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution. And if, you, if I can, I, let me tell you about that for a moment, because that was my next big involvement. And I think it's incredibly important. It's something that came from the UK again. So the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution was the only standing Royal Commission. It was abolished soon after I left because the government of the day didn't like the sort of things we were saying. And, but this was a report in the late 1990s, which was world uh, leading, I think, because what it did was actually um, take the um, climate change issue 
I was the climate change person on the committee. The others were engineers, lawyers, you name it. And after I'd spoken about climate change, the reaction of the committee was, well, we should, we should try and get greenhouse gases to zero. But as, as I said before, in those days, you couldn't really see how to do that. So what the Royal Commission did, what we did, was actually say, well, we probably already know the technologies that are likely to be able there in 2050. So let's take 2050 as a target date. And we were the first to do that. We said, well, what sort of reduction could we achieve from the sort of technologies we know about? And is that consistent with the UK's contribution to what the world should do? So there was the world effort, what should we do on climate change? And then there was bottom up, what can the UK do with its industries? And in the end, we came out with a 60% reduction for the UK by 2050. So that was the late 1990s, the report was 2000. So it was this first time where they said, what should the world do? What should the UK contribution be? And and the target date of 2050, and then what can we actually do and put all those together? Mm. And that sort of model has been taken. So the 2050 target has gone through after that and was in the Climate Change Act, etc. Sorry, so that's a slight diversion. The politicians they took that report, but they, um, you know, they welcomed it, but um, people were loath to take the actions that are required and this is, I suppose, what I found all along, is that the politicians will accept the essence of the report that you're giving, but always when it comes down to taking that crucial, making that crucial policy decision, they've got their eye on other balls as well. And they're always a bit like dealing with COVID. They're always doing things a bit too late. And you find you have to do more when you do it too late. So what about having scientists as politicians? Well, interesting thing, yeah. I mean, I wish scientists were more at the heart of government. Mm-hmm. I and mean, if you take the Chinese government, clearly there's many things that happen in China in terms of some policies that you wouldn't like, but there, there are engineers in, in charge. They're very pragmatic. And when it comes to something, they, they have a feeling for the issues which are scientific or engineering. And that was Margaret Thatcher as well, was a scientist. Mm. So they realised the importance of the issues, whereas those who come from policy, uh, you know, PPE and then the economic side tend to be overweighed by the economic implications mm. or the political implications. Yeah. And the idea of leading in an area, which is what Margaret Thatcher did, the people weren't with her, but the, this is an important issue as your leader. I should bring this to your attention and we should be taking the actions. That's what real leadership is. So, I mean, yeah, of course, like it might not be everyone's cup of tea, China or Margaret Thatcher, but, you know, render no, unto Caesar's Everything is great with either of those. However, if we had, there's not one scientist in government, I don't think. Um, yeah. you know, and... It's just, I mean, I think it shows in so many ways that there is not that real understanding of science, of uncertainty, of risks, of handling risks. What do statistics mean? What do predictions, what do projections mean? Um, you've seen this all along with COVID, but they don't, there isn't really the understanding there. 
And again, with, with, the, um, with the climate change issue, many of us, and a huge number of us, try and say, look, there is a huge opportunity here. What is the UK going to do, be good at in 30 years time? Okay, we don't have that many natural resources in general. Actually, we do have a lot of wind. Okay, we do have a natural resource. We've got a lot of ocean nearby. We've got a lot of wind. Actually, we've got a lot of tide as well, but maybe that's not going to be so important. And we have a lot of know-how and a lot of scientific and engineering background. So why do we cling to the old industries when we should be saying, here's the opportunity of the new industries? And um, again, it's frustrating how the politicians will not say that. And in my, in the, my position on the Climate Change Committee, um, which I was there for 10 years, um, I hope we can talk about the Climate Change Act in a moment, because I think that's great too. Yep. But the Climate Change Committee, we kept saying, okay, we're going to meet this, this target, this five-year target, but the way we're going, we're not going to meet those targets in future. You need to put in policies now to cope with those targets in future. Mm -hmm. But politicians find great difficulty in doing something now for 10 years' time. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me a lot of uh, uh, back home. So in Belgium, where I come from, we we've had these kind of debates about uh, mobility and transport for ages now. About you know, should buses and train routes be expanded? Should we have um, kind of public transport system be upgraded and and funded better? And and the politicians seem to always say, yes, yes, we will, we will, we'll put more money into it, but. We'll do it just when people change their habits so that they use it more. And the, if you ask the people, they'll say, oh, yeah, 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 we'll use the transports more when they're funded properly and they're expanded upon. And I can actually get to work without using three buses in two hours. <laughs> and you see the same thing with electric vehicles. Most people I meet will say, well, I'm not going to get an electric vehicle, electric car, until I know I can really charge that thing whenever I want. But mm -hmm. the putting in the charging infrastructure is not, you know, the people say, oh, we'll put the infrastructure in when there's more demand. And you see this time and time again. It's where leadership is needed, real leadership. So coming short of like quite, quite a large uh, reform of having official scientists in, in politics, do you have any ideas of how we can make politicians more responsive to climate advice? And in the end, um, there should be a public clamour. And maybe the politicians themselves, and I'm not saying we need to plant scientists into government. You know, there should be an education where um, our general education system should be such that everyone is more cognizant yeah. of science. And whatever expertise they develop, in particular, they should be, they should be much more knowing about the science. But then... Um, I, there is all this, we do live in a democracy and if people really said this issue is crucial to us, like young people have been saying on this mm -hmm. Fridays for the future, you know, that is, that is really important. I mean, I think some of us think, well, we were very active in the 60s. Where are the active people in the sort of 2000s, etc.? Where was the activity? Um, 
they should have been on the street saying climate change is an issue that you've got to deal with. And it's really good to see the young people taking that on board again. And if that clamour could spread, the politicians would find it much easier to act. So maybe we can't just blame them. We can blame people who vote them in who are not telling them it's an important issue. Yeah, But I mean, if we do look at, like you said, the Fridays for Future um, walks and protests all over the world, we have seen record amounts of people. I mean, millions on the streets um even in the uk like uh, where we where we studied jamie and i in lancaster where there were a lot of of kind of protests and, and marches through the town through the university but i think i at least as a climate activist i guess in part i find it really difficult to translate that public clamor as you say into effective action i mean yeah. maybe it's because it needs to be targeted like for example doing it in Lancaster isn't really I think that much of um isn't really that effective because we have a counselor uh Kat Smith who who's very responsive to these issues who understands climate change is a massive issue who talks to scientists I know for I, I know that um quite regularly so maybe you know going out into the street and showing up in Lancaster isn't really uh, the best idea when there are places like Morkham, for example, right next door, where uh, David Morris, the MP, uh, I'm pretty sure doesn't give two craps about about climate change. Yeah, I mean it's it's not going to solve it on its own, <clears throat> and what we need is some of the enthusiasm spreading wider in the population. And so, and I think it is now generally there that it's a it's pretty high up, even given COVID, it's right up the top there as an issue. And I think the politicians have got to hear that people are really saying that. Um, so it's not so simple. It's not going to solve it. There's no simple solution like that. In the end, I think um, the, the most persuasive thing is probably going to be the economic opportunities right. that will be denied. Um, and I, when I've given talks in the past, and people have often said to me, well, you know, isn't just China the problem? And because they're emitting so much, and I say, actually, you should, the big concern you should have is that China is going to be um, totally dominant in all the industries that we need. That should be your big concern. China is changing rapidly itself. And you've seen now that the great thing of their, their target of zero emissions by 2060. And if China says that, that means they can do it by, they think they can do it by 2050. So yeah. China is changing. And well, China has tools that we don't, which is you know, authoritarian kind of decrees, let's say. But yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder how, what you think about the target for 2050 in the UK. The 2050 target, I think that was, that was brilliant. Um, and I, the Climate Change Act, was, which we don't have much time to talk about now, but the Climate Change Act in 2008 was brilliant. And that gave a 2050 target of 80% reduction. And I was, I was quite involved in helping choose that number on, on the climate, from the Climate Change Committee. Um, but it's got that 2050 target, it's got five-year targets. And it went through Parliament with 453 voting for it and five against, I think. Amazing. Five against. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So it's absolutely brilliant. And yeah. then... The, the adjustment of that to go to, instead of 80% reduction, 100% reduction 
by 2050 is really good. But the challenge for the UK now is to have a 2030 target that is consistent with that. And as we're leaving the EU, unfortunately, um, then we have to have our own target now. We're not part of the EU's. So for the next, for the um, Glasgow COP, we have to have a, our own target and we need to produce that very soon. And it should be really consistently going to zero by 2050. And that's what the world's waiting for is the UK target there. Are we going to set a really world leading target for 2030? Because others will follow that, I think. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the UK is unfortunately not really uh, on track to, to meet its target, its 2050 target, at least at the moment. Um, that's right. Well, yeah. that's what we we're telling on the Climate Change Committee. Okay, you're meeting the current five-year targets, but the targets for the late 2020s, you're not. You're mm -hmm. offbeat. Now, since then, the, the overall target's been tightened to this zero. So this is where it becomes crucial now. Are the politicians, is the UK government going to set a target which is really serious about going to zero at 2050? And then are they going to put the policies in place which make that a realistic target? That's the real question at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that the UK is doing a lot of the easy steps first which you know yeah. make makes sense obviously as you said politicians don't want to do a lot of things now that will only impact the later um, years but it, it seems to me like a lot of the easier steps have been taken and that the next steps to meet the 2030s 2040s 2050s target are, are really really difficult steps to take steps that might not be politically positive or that the public might not really react to well without understanding the necessity for it so I, I wonder what you think about kind of what the next steps are going to be because you know if we let's say cut coal cut gas there's still a lot to do and we might kind of run out of ideas without getting to the kind of extreme stuff like changing our agricultural system yeah. how do we make those ideas palatable if they if they end up being necessary i i agree that we we've done the easier thing what that shouldn't belittle what we've done in the power supply system. Mm -hmm. The switch to wind has been dramatic and the solar is playing an increasing role. So transport, we know how to do it. Um, and it just needs a bit of oomph behind the policies to get it really working. Housing is more difficult because we have a legacy of bad housing. But the, the criminal thing there is that we're building new houses that aren't at the right standard as well. So yes, it needs some really big action there to put us in the right direction. I totally agree with that. And that's the action we're looking for, the policies now, which make these harder to do things possible. And that's the big question. Are we going to get there? So this, this period now for the UK, um, we've given ourselves a more difficult thing. We've had... Brexit, which has occupied a lot of attention and <laughs> maybe give economic difficulty. We've got the pandemic, but actually rising above all those, we've got the climate change too. And it's in this year that the UK says, can we handle all these things? Can we handle them as well as we can? So we've got an amazing challenge. I just hope our government is up to it. And the Climate Change Act was 
was a really brilliant piece of uh, legislation. It was world leading. It set a really strong target for 2050, but it actually as well set five-year targets on the way um, or the, the framework for that. And then it set up the Climate Change Committee to give the independent monitoring of what was happening and the advice. And the combination of all those was really a, a brilliant bit of legislation. But as I say, it went through with almost uniform agreement as well. So that was a, a brilliant thing. And I just hope we can rise above the morass of everything else and, and do a brilliant thing again in this next year for climate change. But it might depend a little bit on what happens in the next few days in terms of the US contribution. If the US is not on board, we're all running in a difficult way. The US will do lots, come what may, because the states, many of the states are really doing it. And many of the US industries know what's going to work in future. And so the US will make a major contribution but if it's not really on board, it's going to be difficult. I, I think I'd like to close up on, on the same kind of question that we asked uh, one of your colleagues, Joanna Haig. Do you have any advice for any young meteorologist or scientist kind of starting up in the field? Anything that you've learned from a quite full, I have to say, career? I mean, you, you were really busy getting all those awards and, <laughs> and publications. Yeah. And so I'm thinking you, might, you must have learned a thing or two that you might be willing to to give to uh, some some young well, scientists. I think it's incredibly important to get a very strong scientific background. You may have the climate change as the big thing you want to make a contribution to, but that contribution is going to be much stronger if you've given yourself an incredibly firm basis in the mathematics, physics, biology, chemistry, whatever it is. So give yourself that firm basis because your contribution will be much stronger if, if you have the credibility that those people cannot ignore you. All right. Well, uh, Jamie, do you have anything else you'd like to ask? Or? Uh, no, no, I think, I think I exhausted all the political questions this time. You, you exhausted me for the day too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that um, I'm sure a lot of people will really appreciate this. So, so Brian Hoskins, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to you both. Okay, bye then. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Human Odyssey podcast. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions, so please head either to our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or even send us a good old-fashioned email at humanodysseythepodcast at gmail.com to let us know your deepest, darkest secrets and also your thoughts on the episode. You can find all of our links on linktr.ee slash thehumanodysseypodcast that's linktr.ee slash the human odyssey podcast and that includes our patreon where you too can donate a few bucks a month to get a multitude of rewards including early episode access bonus episodes requests live stream hangouts and of course shout outs speaking of which big thank you to our loyal crew members nadia shadia tommy and pablo for their help guiding this odyssey we love you very much